morning. Really appreciate Mark leading that song for us for this lesson. So uh, he asked if I had a had a, a request of any sort of song. I said something about the resurrection, and I think he, he nailed it with that selection. Um, we're going to be talking about that this morning. We're going to be talking about the resurrection of our Lord and what that means for us. But before we get to that, before we start talking about the resurrection, we're going to talk about something uh, very much related to it, um, but something that's that should be very personal for everyone in this room, something that every one of us will experience, and that something is death. Without death, there, there would be no resurrection to, to talk about. Um, so we're, we're going to talk about this for a few moments. We're going to talk about death. Then we're going to talk about resurrection as a way not to escape death, but as a way for death to be, to be short-lived, if you will. So we're going to talk about these things. We're going to talk about death. We're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about what these two future experiences should mean for my life today. So, death. What is death? Well, very simply, it is the end of life on this earth. It is when my body ceases to perform every physiological function that it's supposed to perform. It's the end of my physical existence in this realm. That's more or less what death is. So that was kind of an easy question. Now for one that's maybe a little bit more involved. That question is, why is death? Why is death a thing? Why is death something that, that everyone who lives will experience at one point or another? To answer that question, let's, let's start in Genesis chapter 2. We'll look in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 15. We'll begin reading there. Genesis 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. <clears throat> so God has just spent six days creating everything in existence. He, he has breathed life into the animals. He has breathed life into man, the pinnacle of his creation. And not only has he given man life, but he has taken him and he has put him into this garden in the land of Eden. It's a garden that's full of, of, of every type of tree, of every type of fruit that man could eat. He places man in this paradise. And, and when he places man there, he, he, he puts him there, he, he tells him two things. He tells him a couple more things, but two things in particular that we're going to focus on today. He puts him in the garden, and as we just read, he tells him, one, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Any type of tree uh, that, that man could want to eat, any type of fruit man could want to eat, he could eat of it. Then the second thing God tells him, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from any tree, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is what God tells man. These are, these are the rules um, for, for living in this paradise that God has blessed man with. And, and what does God say will happen if man eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, they, they, they will be doomed to die. Man eats from the tree that he's not supposed to eat of, then he's told that he's doomed to die. There's something about disobeying God that results in death. 
There, there's something about disobeying God that results in death. God ordered creation in such a way. If we read, if we, if we had taken the time to read Genesis chapter 1, we, we see that God ordered creation in a very assertive way. And he, part of that order, as we read here in chapter 2, part of the way that God ordered things was that man was not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was part of God's creative order. Man was not created to do that. He was created to eat of any tree except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, something about man rejecting that order, something about man stepping outside of the order that God created, is going to result in death. What is that? What is it about stepping outside of God's order that results in death? Let's look in the next chapter. Next chapter, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when when the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Alright, so so humanity just did the thing that God told humanity not to do. So we're going to see, we're going to learn about the consequences that he said would happen if they did this. So what happens? A lot of things happen. But, but I want to look specifically at verse 24, last verse in chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. So he, God, so he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is, this is what happens when man sin. Man is literally removed from the presence of God. Man is dwelling in, before Genesis chapter 3, man is in the garden, God is in the garden with man, but then man, man, man steps outside of, of the order that was created, and he, he, he must be removed from the presence of God. And this is the result of sin. It separates you from God. It severs that relationship that, you, that God created you to have with him. When you decide to step out from the role that you were created for, and by doing that, you, you can no longer have the relationship that you were created for, the relationship that you were created to have with your creator. That is the result of sin. And herein lies the answer to why disobeying God, to why stepping outside of the order results in death. What, what is one of the big things that we learn about God from Genesis 1 and 2? That that, that's, a, that's a very broad question. You can answer a lot of ways, which is why I asked it in a sermon, not in the Bible class. Because the answer, for, for, this, for our purposes this morning, that God is the author of life. That, that is one of, the, one of the main things that we learn about God in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Because in, in chapter 2, uh, I believe in verse 7, that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. God, there is no life until God breathes life into man. A similar thing was said about the animals uh, back in chapter 1. So God is the author of life. All life comes from God. So, if, if stepping outside of God's created order separates me from God, and if God is the author of life, then stepping outside of the order that I was created for separates me from the author of life. And if I'm if I'm set, if I've separated myself from the author of life, then I, of course, am doomed to die. 
as God said would happen back in Genesis chapter 2. So Adam and Eve, at the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve are removed from the presence of God, from the author of life. They're removed from the garden. They're removed from the tree of life, which we're told uh, in, in chapter 3 and verse 22, that if they ate from the tree of life, then they would live forever. So they, they, they are removed from the presence of the author of life, and they're removed from his tree of life. They, they are now doomed to die, as God said they would be. And so it would really stink if this were the end of the story. But it's not, because if you look at your Bibles, this looks like, what, the first two pages, depending on your font size? There's a lot more in here beyond what, what, what we've just talked about. <clears throat> so this isn't the end of the story, and that's good news for humanity. Because, you see, God wants to have a relationship with his creation. That was the whole point of the first two chapters. That God created man to have this relationship with him, for man to, to work with God. He's supposed to rule the creation with God. But man cast off that responsibility. He steps outside of his created order. He listens to the creation. But just because man does that, just because man rejects everything that he was created for, that doesn't mean that God is just going to give up on the relationship that he wanted in the first place. But because he's also a just God, a righteous God, who, who, who only creates very good things, who doesn't, who doesn't deal with sinful things, things that are unrighteous, unordered, because he is a just God, a God like that, he's not, he's not simply going to overlook man's sin. He's not simply going to just act like they didn't eat of the tree because he wants the relationship. That's not, that's not the type of God that, that we're dealing with here in Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of Scripture. So, because... And so he, he, he is a just God. He's not going to overlook sin because where there is sin, there must be death. That, that's what he said. That is what he said in Genesis chapter 2, and he's not going to go back on that. So what does it look like when a God who wants a relationship with his creation is faced with a creation that has severed that relationship with him? What is he going to do about that? Well, we, we read that he's going to make a way to repair that relationship through this avenue of sacrificial death. The sacrificial death is going to be a way to cover the sin that separates him, that separates man from God. It is a way for man to repair the for the relationship between man and God to be repaired. And I would argue we see an example of that here in Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three and verse twenty-one: The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Other others. Uh, verse, other versions, I believe, read, read garments of animal skin. Here in Genesis chapter 3, an animal literally, an animal dies so that Adam and Eve could literally be covered. So that, they, so that they, their nakedness could literally be covered. So we see this idea of, of death as a result of sin happening, of, of sacrificial death, even in Genesis 3. This is far from, from, the, from, from the only place that we see this. Go ahead. We'll leave Genesis 3 right now and look in Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. Beginning in verse 27. 
Now, if any one of the this is of course this is this is the law that was given for the people of Israel, God's covenant people in the Old Testament after they have left Egypt and when they're at Sinai. So Leviticus chapter four and verse twenty-seven. Now, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known, is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his, for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. So, there, at this point, there, there are a lot more laws and rules in place than simply don't eat of this tree. There's a lot more detailed stuff going on now with the old law. But God says, if any of the people unintentionally break these laws, this is how, and, 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 and in doing so, sever the relationship with God, this is how they can repair that relationship. It involves the sacrificial death of this animal. But, but pay attention to how they are to make the sacrifice. The, the person who has sinned, is to place their hand on the head of the animal while they're killing the animal. This isn't, a, this isn't something where you, know, you, you come and you drop your goat off at the temple and then you leave and the priest will kill it when he gets to it. And this is something where the, you, you are a part of the death of this animal. You are, you, your hand is on the head of the animal as the life is leaving its body. This is a very personal experience. This would be a very graphic experience, one that I think would stay with you for a very long time. Because you know that this animal that is dying in my hands is also dying by my hands. It's dying because of what I've done. This animal is dying in place of me. So this, this is, this, is the, this idea of sacrificial death that allows the severed relationship between God and sinful man to be repaired. So, you're maybe at, if you're just reading the Bible all the way through, you know, you start at Genesis, you haven't read any of it before, you're reading through Genesis, you get through Genesis 3, and you get here to Leviticus, and you read about all the sacrifices, and you're like, okay, sacrificial death, you know, restores the relationship between God and his people, maybe, maybe this will work. Maybe this, this idea will work. But then, you know, you keep reading, you read through a lot more things, and then maybe you wind up in Hebrews. We've been here a lot lately. You end up in Hebrews chapter 10. You read in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have, have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so we have a problem now. The, the, this idea, this, this avenue, this institution of sacrificial death that we see in Leviticus... The Hebrew writer is telling us that that's not enough. That, that blood of the goat that you sacrificed with your hand on its head, the blood that was spilled there is not enough to take away your sins. So we, we, we have a problem here. But then keep reading, or skip down a few verses, and we'll continue reading in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Hebrews 10, verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
Right, same problem. His sacrifices aren't, aren't, aren't cutting it. But he, Christ, he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. <clears throat> for, by one, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Okay, so we, we, we read now that Christ died once for all. Christ offered a sacrifice. He offered himself as a sacrifice, as the ultimate sacrifice that would forgive us of our sins and would repair our relationship with God. There's no need, no more need for the blood of bulls and goats, which, which was not sufficient in the first place, because Christ, our perfect lamb, died for us. Okay, so, so that's, that's great. That's wonderful. Through Christ, our relationship with God can be repaired. But what, what about death? Well, what about our death? Because we all still die in the end. That's what's been happening. You know, Christ died 2,000 years ago. He, he offered that sacrifice 2,000 years ago. But people continue to die over the course of those 2,000 years. So, so why, why is death still a thing? Well, think back to Genesis 3. We were looking at just a few minutes ago. When man is removed from the garden. <clears throat> He's removed from the tree of life. And, and he enters into a world where there is no tree of life, where death is now the rule because man, as a simple creature, can no longer be directly in the presence of God as he was in the garden. He can no longer be with God in the tree of life directly like he was in the garden because of his continual sin. <coughs> so this, this, this death, this question about death is still hanging out there. Why is death still a thing even though our relationship with God can be well, let, let's, let's go back and let's, let's focus in a little bit more on Christ and on his perfect sacrifice for us. <clears throat> was that sacrifice, was it just like all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? We've already kind of answered that question. No, it, it wasn't. Because, like we said, he only had to die once because he, because he was perfect. But he, here's another question, kind of comparing, contrasting these two sacrifices. What happened to those animals after they were killed. Put your hand on the animal, you slit its throat, it has died there in your arms. What happens next to, to, to that animal? Well, its body is cut up and it's burned. And that's the end of it. That animal's gone. That animal's dead, it's gone, that's it. What happened with Christ after he was killed? Turn to John 19. <coughs> John 19, <coughs> excuse me, John 19, we're going, to read, we're going to read some different verses throughout this chapter and see what happened to Christ after he, after he was killed. John 20, sorry, not John 19. John chapter 20. Um, nope, that was right the first time. John 19, verse 40. That's where we'll start. So Christ has been crucified. He... he he is dead. His life has left his body. Verse 40 of John 19. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay, so this is what happened after Christ died. His body, his, his very dead body, is, is laid in this tomb. And that makes sense, right? That's what you do with a dead body. You bury it. 
But is that the end of the story? No, it is not. There are still two chapters left in the Gospel of John. So let, let's read and find out what happens next. John chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, so, so Mary Magdalene, one of Christ's disciples, she comes to the tomb and sees that the stone is rolled away. And, and she assumes, that's all, that, that's all we're told she sees, is that the stone was rolled away. And she assumes that the body has been taken and moved and, and hidden somewhere. Now skip down, let's read uh, verses 6 and 7. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Okay, so now we have visual confirmation. The body is definitely gone. There is no body in this tomb. The burial garments have been left very neatly behind. But there's no body in this tomb. If we look at verse 11, that Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. So she's still weeping. We, if, in a couple of verses prior, they, they still don't know what's going on. They, they think the body has been moved or something. She's weeping because she thinks the body is gone. But then, let's read the beginning of verse 14. <clears throat> when she had said this, she was speaking to two angels who were there. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your, to my father, and your father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus, resurrected from the dead, appears to Mary in, in, in physical form. But the interesting thing is she doesn't, she doesn't recognize him at first. There's, there's, something, there's something different about Jesus where she doesn't recognize Jesus when, when, when she turns and sees him. It is not until he, he calls her by name. It's not until the good shepherd calls his sheep by her name that she recognizes who he is. And she goes and she tells the other disciples. Now let's read beginning in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, one of the apostles, one of the people who had been with Christ the most, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not there when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So Thomas, one of the twelve, he says he's not going to believe. He, can't, he, he just can't do it. He cannot believe that Christ is risen unless he sees the crucified body alive again. And so Christ appears to him. He appears to him eight days later. He appears to him and to the others, and he has Thomas reach out to touch the holes where the nails were driven through his wrist. He has him reach out and touch the hole in his side where the spear was driven to make sure that he was dead. And it is now that Philip realizes that this is the same Jesus whom he saw crucified. That this is the same body that was, that was taken down, lifeless, from the cross and was laid in a, cold, in a cold tomb for three days. This is the same Jesus. The marks are the same. But there's also something that's different about Jesus and his resurrected body. We've already seen how Mary didn't recognize him at first. Um, and, and now, you know, he, he's there, he has the wounds, and Thomas touches the wounds that were there from the crucifixion. But these wounds, they just seem to be there. They don't have an effect on Jesus anymore. The, the wounds that killed him on the cross that Friday, those wounds no, no longer have any effect on him. So we, we see here that Jesus... In his resurrection, he was resurrected with, with a, a different and a better body than the one that was nailed to the cross. So what does that mean? Why, 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 are, we, why are we talking about this right now? Why, why are we talking about this? What does this mean for you and for me? Well, Paul, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Begin reading in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. <clears throat> and in verse 25. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. But when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So we, we read there, in verses 20 through 22, that because Jesus was made alive again, because Jesus was resurrected, because his lifeless body was given life again, we all will be made alive with him. I, I can know, I can know for certain that I, when I die, will rise again because Jesus did. And because he will completely defeat death in the end. Death, as we talked about from Genesis 3, as we saw in Leviticus 4, death, just the ultimate consequence of my sins, stands no chance against the God who created me and breathed life into me in the first place. Let's continue reading in verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 Corinthians 15 and verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What a, what a wonderful comfort that is. That even though I'm going to die, even though my body is going to stop working, one day I'm going to be raised up again with, with an even better body that is meant for glory. This, I know, is ahead of me. And this is good news. Because this happened to Jesus, because, because he died, but because he was raised, I know that it's going to happen to me one day. <clears throat> it's an interesting and, and awesome comparison that Paul makes in verse, verse 45. He says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. So that, that's from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 that we read earlier. When God breathed life into Adam, made him a living soul. But the last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam is made alive, but the second Adam, the last Adam, Christ, is going to give life. He's going to give life to, to me and to you. He's going, to, he's going to raise us from the dead just as he was risen. So we're, we're told here that, we're, that when that resurrection happens, that, that we're going to be resurrected with, with a new, better, imperishable body than the one that was put in the grave. We're told that. We can know that because God said, and God is a faithful God, that, that I, one day, am going to rise again with, with an imperishable body. Just like our Savior did. Just like, we, just like we read in John 20. And if you continue reading in John 21, you would see. That we, we will be raised with a body like our Savior was raised. A body that sin and death can no longer destroy. Remember, the wounds were there. They didn't have any effect on him. He was walking. He was talking with his disciples. We see in chapter 21, he, he, was, he was talking with them, meeting with them, eating with them. Jesus was very much alive. But sin and death had no effect on that body. <clears throat> so what, what a wonderful comfort that can be. I can know that even though I'm going to die, even though my body is going to stop working, I will be raised up again with an even better body. <clears throat> so let's look finally uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 54. These truths should have an effect on me. They should have an effect on me right now while I'm still living in this body of dust. These truths should have an effect on me right now. Let's begin reading verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. <clears throat> because of the resurrection, because of everything Paul has just laid out 
in the previous 57 verses of this chapter, I can, I can live right now with confidence and with assurance. I can abound in the work of my God because Jesus was raised and because I will be raised. I can live with hope because I know that I am not doomed to die in my sins. And that hope that I can live with, that I should be living with, should be evident in every interaction that I have with others. Every interaction I have in this world while I'm still breathing, that people should be able to, to tell that I, I, have a, I have a hope. I have, there's something going on with this person that supersedes anything else that's, that's happening to them in their life. And, and, and that hope can be traced back to the resurrection, to the fact that Christ was raised and the fact that I will be raised as well. And because of the resurrection, I know that there, there's a lot more to experience than just whatever I can cram into however many years I'm given here on this earth. There's a lot more to life than simply existing for the you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 40, however many years you're given. There's a lot more to life than, than just existing because of the resurrection. I know that there is more to existence than simply trying to find fulfillment in whatever I choose to try and find fulfillment in before I die and everything fades to black forever. Because everything's not going to fade to black forever. There will be a resurrection. But if there's a resurrection after this life, that should be affecting what I do in this life, how I live my life now. If there is a being, a, a being, who can and will make dead people alive again, who has already made a dead person alive again. And, and, but not only is he going to make dead people alive again, but he's going to make them even more alive than they were before they died. So if that being exists, then I need to be living for this being. If the God of the Bible can do, can, can do what he says he can do, which he has proved over and over and over again that he can, then I need to be living for him. My whole life needs to be about him. If he is going to, if he is going to save me from the death at the end of this life, then do, do I not owe him everything? Do I not owe him my life right now? Everything about my life, not just the Sundays, not just the Wednesdays, not just the gospel meetings, not just any everything about my life, my work, my the things I find enjoyment in. My, my emotions, my thoughts, my actions, my words, my relationships with my family, my relationships with my friends, my relationships with those who I don't happen to get along with very well. Everything about my life belongs to the God who's going to resurrect me and bring me up out of my grave. Everything belongs to him. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Our toil is not in vain because he's going to raise us again. We can live with this knowledge. We can live with this assurance. And, and we can live with joy and with hope because of it. And that, that is a wonderful, wonderful gift and blessing that God gives to us. So the, these ideas of the resurrection, these thoughts about the resurrection, they, they should do more for us than, than simply comfort us, perhaps, when a loved one passes. They can do that for certain. They're, they're, they're meant for that. 
Um, but there, there is, that's, that's why Paul writes to the Thessalonians. But there's a lot, they, they, they should be doing a lot more in our lives than just that. They should change everything about our lives. Because when, when Christ rose from the dead, that changed everything about this world. It changed everything that this world thought that it did. And we're now living after that resurrection, and we should live like, like we believe that it's true. So because it's happened once, because Christ was resurrected, and because the same, that same God who resurrected him said he would do it for me, I can believe that. And everything about my life will be shaped by gratitude, by gratitude for him for what he's done for me. I hope that these, these words have been encouraging for you this morning. Um, this is the foundation of our faith. This is the foundation of, of our lives, is the resurrection. Earlier in the chapter, we didn't read, but Christ says, if the resurrection had happened, then we of all men are to be most pitied. We, we are fools for living the way that, that we're called to live if the resurrection didn't happen. But the resurrection did happen. And so we should live like it happened. Uh, I hope this is encouraging for you. I hope that you can take this into your life this week and, and, and live with this knowledge of the resurrection. And let it change you. Let it continue to change you. It, it should change you until you die. It should, it should change you until your body is returned to the dust as God said it would happen in Genesis 3. This should continue to change you until then, and then after that, God's going to change you more than you can ever imagine when he, when he raises you up again and gives you that imperishable body like he did for his son and our Lord. <clears throat> I hope that everyone here has this hope. Um, we, we talked earlier in the lesson about having a having to have a right relationship with God, that having that relationship with him is the only way um, to have life. That if you do not have a relationship with the author and the giver of life, then you are doomed to die. We, we have that relationship now through his son. We read about his sacrifice and how he died once for all. And, and the way that we repair, that, that we can have the relationship repaired with God is to submit to our God to submit to him, be washed with the blood of our sacrifice, the blood of Christ, be washed with his blood in baptism, and to be raised up a new man, once again with a right relationship with, with the God who created us. So if, if, you, if you need that this morning, if you need anything from the congregation this morning, then we are more than happy to help you. We, we want to draw closer to God. We want to help everyone here draw closer to God. So if you need that relationship repaired, or anything else, we ask that you please come forward now as we stand and as we sing.